Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I do want to thank you for listening. We have on this site over 3,400 audios featuring great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea and other lands. We have Bible studies. You can also go to Google Play Store and Apple Store and just download the Church One app, Church One app for sermon audio, and just enter, if you like, Hackberry House. My books are on Amazon.com, and you can contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com. I'm reading today from the life of John G. Patton, and uh, we've uh, got him on to the New Hebrides area, but we're, we're going to break ground on Tana today. Breaking ground on Tana. This is chapter 12. Our small missionary schooner, the John Knox, having no accommodation for lady passengers and little for anybody else except the discomfort of lying on deck, we took advantage of a trader to convey us from Anatium to Tana. The captain kindly offered to take us and about 30 casks and boxes to Port Resolution for five pounds, which we gladly accepted. After a few hours sailing, we were all safely landed on Tana on the 5th of November, 1858. Dr. Getty went for a fortnight to Umarekar, now known as Quamera, on the south side of Tana, to assist in the settlement of Mr. and Mrs. Matheson and to help in making their house habitable and comfortable. Mr. Copeland, Mrs. Patton, and I were left at Port Resolution to finish the building of our house there and work our way into the goodwill of the natives as best we could. On landing, we found the people to be literally naked and painted savages. They were at least as destitute of clothing as Adam and Eve after the fall, when they sewed fig leaves for a girdle, and even more so, for the women wore only a a tiny apron of grass, in some cases shaped like a, a skirt or girdle, the men an indescribable affair like a a pouch or bag, and the children absolutely nothing whatever. At first they came in crowds to look at us and everything we did or had. We knew nothing of their language. We could not speak a single word to them, nor they to us. We looked at them and they at us. We smiled and nodded and made signs to each other. This was our first meeting and parting. One day I observed two men, uh, the one lifting up one of our articles to the other and saying, Nungsi nare enu? I concluded that he was asking, what is this? Instantly, lifting a piece of wood, I said, Nungsi nare enu? They smiled and, and spoke to each other. I understood them to be saying, he's got a hold of our language now. Then they told me their name for the thing which I had pointed to. I found that they understood my question, what is this or what is that, and that I could now get from them the name of every visible or tangible thing around us. We carefully noted down every name they gave us, spelling all phonetically, and also every strange sound we heard from them. Thereafter, by painstaking comparison of different circumstances, We tried to ascertain their meanings, testing our own guess by again cross-questioning the natives. One day I saw two men approaching, when one, who was a stranger, 
pointed to me with his finger and said, Senangin. Concluding that he was asking my name, I pointed to one of them with my finger and, and looking at the other, I inquired, Senangin. They smiled and gave me their names. We were now able to get the names of persons and things, and so our ears got familiarized with the distinctive sounds of their language, and being always keenly on the alert, we made extraordinary progress in attempting bits of conversation and in reducing their speech for the first time to a written form. For the new Hebrideans had no literature, not even the rudiments of an alphabet. I used to hire some of the more intelligent lads and men to sit and talk with us and answer our questions about names and sounds. But they so often deceived us, and we doubtless misunderstood them so often, that this course was not satisfactory until after we had gained some knowledge of their language and its construction, and they themselves had become interested in helping us. Amongst our most interesting helpers and most trustworthy were two aged chiefs, Noah and Nuka, in many respects two of nature's noblest gentlemen, kind at heart to all, and distinguished by a certain native dignity of bearing. But they were both under the leadership of the war chief, Miaki, a kind of devil king over many villages and tribes. The Tanese had hosts of stone idols, charms, and sacred objects which they abjectly feared, and in which they devoutly believed. They were given up to countless superstitions and firmly glued to their dark heathen practices. Their worship was entirely a service of fear, its aim being to propitiate this or that evil spirit, to prevent calamity or to secure revenge. They deified their chiefs, like the Romans of old, so that almost every village or tribe had its own sacred man, and some of them had many. They exercised an extraordinary influence for evil, these village or tribal priests, and were believed to have the disposal of life and death through their sacred ceremonies, not only in their own tribe, but over all the islands. Sacred men and women, wizards and witches, received presents regularly to influence the gods, and to remove sickness or to cause it by the nahak, that is, the incantation over remains of food, or the skin of fruit, such as banana, which the person has eaten on whom they wish to operate. They also worshipped the spirits of departed ancestors and heroes through their material idols of wood and stone, but chiefly of stone. They feared these spirits and sought their aid, especially seeking to propitiate those who presided over war and peace, famine and plenty, health and sickness, destruction and prosperity, life and death. Their whole worship was one of slavish fear, and so far as ever I could learn, they had no idea of a God of mercy or grace. But these very facts, that they did worship something, that they believed in spirits of ancestors and heroes, and that they cherished many legends regarding those whom they had never seen, and handed these down to their children, and the fact that they had ideas about the invisible world and its inhabitants, 
made it not so hard as some might suppose to convey to their minds once their language and modes of thought were understood some clear ideal of Jehovah God as the great uncreated Spirit Father who himself created and sustains all that is. It could not, however, be done offhand or by a few airy lessons. The whole heart and soul and life had to be put into the enterprise. But it could be done, that we believed, because they were men, not beasts. It had been done, that we saw in the converts on Aneitium, and our hearts rose to the task with quenchless hope. Chapter 13, Pioneers in the New Hebrides A glance backwards over the story of the gospel in the New Hebrides may help to bring my readers and listeners into touch with the events that are to follow. The ever-famous names of Williams and Harris are associated with the earliest efforts to introduce Christianity amongst this group of islands in the South Pacific Seas. John Williams and his young missionary companion, Harris, under the auspices of the London Missionary Society, landed on Eromanga on the 30th of November, 1839. Alas, within a few minutes of their touching land, both were clubbed to death, and the savages proceeded to cook and feast upon their bodies. Thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs, And Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. His cross must yet be lifted up where the blood of his saints has been poured forth in his name. The poor heathen knew not that they had slain their best friends. But tears and prayers ascended for them from all Christian souls wherever the story of the martyrdom on Eramanga was read or heard. Again, therefore, in 1842, the London Missionary Society sent out Messrs. Turner and Nisbet to pierce this kingdom of Satan. They placed their standard on our chosen island of Tana, the nearest to Aramanga. In less than seven months, however, their persecution by the savages became so dreadful that we see them in a boat trying to escape by night with bare life. Out on that dangerous sea they would certainly have been lost, but the ever-merciful drove them back to land and sent next morning a whaling vessel, which, contrary to custom, called there, and just in the nick of time. They, with all goods that could be rescued, were got safely on board and sailed for Samoa. Say not their plans and prayers were baffled, for God heard and abundantly blessed them there, beyond all their dreams. After these things, the London Missionary Society again and again placed Samoan native teachers on one or other island of the New Hebrides. But their unhealthiness, compared with the more wholesome Samoa or Rarotonga, so afflicted them with the dreaded fever, besides what they endured from the inhospitable savages themselves, that no effective mission work had been accomplished there till at last the Presbyterian missionaries were led to enter upon the scene. Christianity had no foothold anywhere on the New Hebrides unless it were in the memory and the blood of the martyrs of Eromanga. 
The Reverend John Getty and his wife from Nova Scotia were landed on Anitium, the most southerly island of the New Hebrides, in 1848. And the Reverend John Inglis and his wife from Scotland were landed on the other side of the same island in 1852. An agent for the London Missionary Society, the Reverend T. Powell, accompanied Dr. Getty for about a year to advise as to his settlement and to assist in opening up the work. Marvelous as it may seem, the natives on Anitium showed interest in the missionaries from the very first and listened to their teachings, so that in a few years Dr. Inglis and Dr. Getty saw about 3,500 savages throwing away their idols, renouncing their heathen customs, and avowing themselves to be worshippers of the true Jehovah God. Slowly, yet progressively, they unlearned their heathenism. Surely and hopefully they learned Christianity and civilization. When these missionaries came to this island, there were no Christians there. When they left it, there were no heathens. That's a quote. Further, these poor Anitomese, having glimpses of the word of God, determined to have a holy Bible in their own mother tongue, wherein before no book or page ever had been written in the history of their race. The consecrated brain and hand of their missionaries kept toiling day and night in translating the book of God, and the willing hands and feet of the natives kept toiling through fifteen long but unwearying years, planting and preparing arrowroot to pay the twelve hundred pounds required to be laid out in the printing and publishing of the book. Year after year, the arrowroot, too sacred to be used for their daily food, was set apart as the Lord's portion. The missionaries sent it to Australia and Scotland, where it was sold by private friends, and the whole proceeds consecrated to this purpose. On the completion of the great undertaking by the Bible Society, it was found that the natives had earned as much as to pay every penny of the outlay, and their first Bibles went out to them, purchased with the consecrated toils of fifteen years. Let those who lightly esteem their Bibles think on those things. Eight shillings for every leaf, or the labor and proceeds of fifteen years for the Bible entire, did not appear to these poor converted savages too much to pay for that word of God, which had sent to them the missionaries, which had revealed to them the grace of God in Christ, and which had opened their eyes to the wonders and glories of redeeming love. Amen. Amen. Next time, chapter 14, The Great Bereavement. The Great Bereavement is next. Do come back, will you? This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we will talk again real soon. Bye-bye.